Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. The extremist Israeli settlers accused of terrorizing Palestinian civilians in the occupied West Bank will have a special report. And Israel's closest allies voice concerns about the country's wartime conduct. Mark Regev joins me. He's senior advisor to the Israeli prime minister. Then, a look ahead at 2024 with the economist Tom Standage. He tells Hari Srinivasan next year could be a make-or-break moment for democracy. And finally, the other Ukraine war to save a priceless piece of Jewish heritage. Historian Jonathan Brent joins me. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. As casualties continue to mount in Gaza, Israel's allies are also continuing to mount criticism about surging settler violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. The UK, France and the United States are all calling on it to end and slapping travel bans and sanctions on some extremist settlers. This comes as the European Union, Britain and 13 other countries, including Australia and Canada, release a joint statement saying, quote, Israel's failure to protect Palestinians and prosecute extremist settlers has led to an environment of near complete impunity in which settler violence has reached unprecedented levels. And according to the United Nations, this year has been the deadliest on record since 2005 for Palestinians in the West Bank. 477 have been killed, with more than half happening after October 7th. Correspondent Neymar Al-Bagir has this special report from Hebron. We stop at a service station in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. A man in military fatigues demands to check our IDs. He has no identifying insignia, won't tell us who he is, but he's got a gun. So we oblige. We're confused and we're not the only ones. CNN obtained this video from inside Hebron, a divided city, filmed a few days after the Hamas October 7 attack. The Palestinian man won't comply. He says he recognizes the man with the gun as a settler, not a soldier. In this tense climate, if a soldier issues an order, you comply. But is everyone with a gun and fatigues a soldier? The West Bank is under Israeli military occupation. It's also believed to be home to almost three-quarters of a million settlers, Israeli civilians living in the occupied territories. 
Settlers consider this part of their biblical homeland and are expanding into Palestinian territories, even though the UN Security Council considers their presence illegal. Yet settlers are integral to Israel's security plan in the occupied territories, as Israel Defense Force reservists and settlement security squads. Responding, the IDF says, to security threats in settlements, towns and villages. Palestinians told CNN they consider armed settlers a greater threat than ever before. Their remit from the IDF is blurring the lines as settlers encroach on Palestinian land. Like here, in the Palestinian village of Tuwani, where there's a settlement at the top of the hill. In this video, you see men in military fatigues. The IDF equips both civilian settler security squads and soldiers in the region. As you can see here, it's almost impossible to differentiate. They point their rifles at residents and then they shoot, according to eyewitnesses. CNN shared the images we gathered in the West Bank with a senior IDF official who was unable to tell us who here is in the IDF and who is not. We asked how then are Palestinians expected to differentiate. The official told CNN there have been cases of reservists who did not act in accordance with army standards, adding there is no place in the IDF for such behavior. Every case that breaches army standards will be investigated. Palestinians, the official said, should contact their local brigade. But Palestinian rights activist and local resident Basil Adra says settlers in military fatigues are forcing Palestinians off their land. These settlers and with their guns and they're pointing it to the head of the, of the residents and they tell them, if you don't leave in 24 hours, we will shut you. So the family would understand that they're not playing. It's a serious threat of killing if you don't leave, leave your home. That led for like 35 families to leave. And these settlers have been wearing uniform also. Settlers have heavyweight support in Israel's far-right government. Itamar Ben-Gavir, Minister for National Security, settler. After the Hamas October 7 attack, Ben-Gavir loosened gun permit regulations, making it easier for tens of thousands of Israeli civilians to bear arms. Betzalel Smotrich, Minister of Finance, settler. Also post-attack, pushed through over 100 million US dollars for West Bank security, including funds for training and equipping settler security squads. But it's not just arming and equipping. We witnessed firsthand some of the restrictions the IDF imposed on Palestinians. Iqtidal's house is not even five minutes away from the other side of this checkpoint, but she can't get through. Every day they tell her to go back, and every day she has to do this extraordinarily long loop to try and get in. She said they are, they are intentionally making it difficult for us, make, making it so we have to cross through areas that are hostile to us to get to our homes. Iqtidal picks up a few more things before she sets off home. But not too many. It's a long walk uphill. Since the 1990s, the city of Hebron has seen many curfews. The day we visited, there was a curfew in place from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Ihtidal has to go through this checkpoint. Palestinians have to be searched. Settlers 
aren't normally checked. Ihtidal has to walk, settlers can drive. Palestinians need permission for visitors, settlers don't. The IDF says all these measures are in accordance with their security assessments to provide security for all residents. Settlers and Palestinians live side by side, but the rules for each are very different. Faiza and her husband have lived in this house for 14 years. They inherited it from her husband's grandparents. Their house is overlooked by an IDF sentry post, yet they fear for their safety. This scene is so inappropriate and depressing for our home. You can see up here what we've had to put in place to protect ourselves from the settlers. As we leave Faiza's house, we get stopped by an Israeli soldier. He says we're not allowed to walk along the main road. We have to go back to the checkpoint to be searched again because we've been inside a Palestinian home. I would just point out a lack of logic, which is that these Palestinian houses, the Palestinians have come through that checkpoint, so they can't have possibly brought in anything. Uh, sorry, just so I can understand, just, just so I can understand, yeah. I'm really confused, as usual. So, even though we went through <laughs> that checkpoint, okay. even though we went through that checkpoint, yeah. because we have been in the house of Palestinians, we now have to go jumping over people's garden walls. So we can't walk on no, the street. We can't no, go we straight can't. down. Come back. If you were going through the checkpoint and you stay here, it's great. But if, mm. as soon as you move from different areas... Yes. So you need to get rechecked. Now do you understand it? Oh. Yes. So okay. we need to get rechecked. So, so we're going to the route that... Stay up next time. Come on. Oh, okay, okay. Let's Sorry. just go. Thank you. Thank you. We'll Have see you in a bit. Day. See you soon. But we can't get down. The access to the garden is closed. So the path I can see is the other side of that fence, but if you can see one, I can't. We can't walk on the street because we've been in a Palestinian house, and now we're deemed a security risk. So we're stuck. Eventually, the soldier has to call into his superior to give us special permission to walk on the main road. Thank you so much. We head out and back through the checkpoint where we're searched again. A tiny glimpse into what Palestinians navigate every day. The UN says that post-October 7th, over a thousand Palestinians in the West Bank have been displaced, forced from home by security restrictions and settler violence. The US and UK are now sanctioning extreme settlers, but Palestinians say it's not enough. Not when settlers can cloak themselves in the authority of the Israeli state. Neymar Albagia reporting that. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Now to the growing international pressure on Israel to protect Palestinian civilians in their war on Hamas. Internal pressure too is rising. Today, Prime Minister Netanyahu met with families of Israeli hostages after the IDF killed three Israelis kidnapped by Hamas in Gaza on Friday. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Mark Regev, senior advisor to the Prime Minister. Mark Regev, welcome back to the program. Can we just first start Thank you for with- having me. Thank you. Can we first start with the report from Neymar El-Bagir in, um, in Hebron and other parts of the occupied West Bank there? Um, I don't know what your reaction is, but I wonder whether you might react also to what President Biden has said. And he, he warned many months ago, actually two months ago, that these settlers are pouring gasoline on the fire. And yet it looks like the situation just persists and if not, gets worse. Is this a government policy or what? Israel's government policy is clear that anyone involved in extremist vigilante violence, then law enforcement will bring them to justice. Anyone who breaks the law, anyone who commits violence, uh, they will be arrested and they will face the full uh, weight of the law. We have no tolerance for this sort of uh, uh, vigilante violence. I use the term uh, Christian vigilante violence because, as you said, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of settlers who live over the Green Line uh, the overwhelming majority of them are not involved in violence in any way. We're talking about a very, very small minority. Uh, and uh, and we, as I said, we our policy, and it's agreed, the settler leadership agrees with us. We can't allow these people to take uh, uh, the law into their hands and commit violence. That's unacceptable. And yet, as we saw in the report, you know, government minister, Mr. Smotrich and the others have, have increased gun permits and gun availability to them. They exist and appear to operate alongside, in some cases, IDF soldiers. And it does look like it's getting worse to the point that, you know, as we just reported, US, France, you know, Britain, other countries are getting very anxious about this and are slapping sanctions and travel bans on these extremists. So you say it's unacceptable. Let's take you at your word. But what is the accountability? I mean, these people are recognizable. We've, we've filmed them. So I've been in meetings when these issues have come up with, uh, you know, with foreign interlocutors. Uh, and I can tell you the numbers show clearly that we're actually being successful, that the, the level of this sort of vigilante violence is going down and we are defeating this. And that's that's a good thing. But if one wants to discuss violence on the West Bank, it's not even a two-way street. The overwhelming major uh, majority of the violence is, of course, Palestinians against Jews. We saw that uh, recently there was the terrible attack in Jerusalem uh, uh, where three people were shot dead at a bus stop just going to work on a, on a weekday morning. Uh, most of the violence is, unfortunately, Palestinian on uh, Jew, not the other way around. Mark Regev, any violence is despicable, uh, but the numbers obviously show that the overwhelming number of dead and wounded on the occupied West Bank are Palestinians. We just quoted the United Nations saying that how it was a record year for the killings of Palestinians in the West Bank. But let me move on because... Yes, but can, I, can I respond to that, please, Christian? I want to respond to that because the, the, those people are fundamentally uh, 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 terrorists. And I'd ask you to look at those numbers very carefully. Since October 7th, there are unfortunately Hamas cells across the West Bank. And uh, Hamas has given uh, instructions to its cells, this is a time to kill. This is a time to, to cause uh, terrorist incidents. And we've been preempting 
and there have been gunfights where when we can arrest people uh, peacefully, we of course do that. But often there are gunpoints and that's where the casualties are coming from. This is us preempting Hamas violence and so far relatively, except for that terrible attack we had in Jerusalem, we've managed so far to keep the level of terrorist violence very low by being proactive and by being by preempting. If I'm not mistaken, a huge number of Palestinians were killed before October 7th, including there were instances of, for instance, an unarmed teenage boy being killed and, and the like. But let us not nitpick now because you've said your thing, we've shown what's going on, and you say it's unacceptable. People are going to be waiting for the accountability. May I ask you, as the prime ministers are chief advisor, particularly with, the, with us, the international community, to assess what's happened in the last few days. I mean, it looks like it, there's a huge amount of pressure mounting on the prime minister. Internally, people are very upset, getting more and more upset, your own people, about uh, the hostages, particularly about what happened in a, I guess you can call it a friendly fire incident on Friday. Uh, the prime minister apparently is meeting with hostage families today at the Defence Ministry where there have been protests about this. What is going to come out of that? Because I'm, I'm just going to read you what some, some uh, families are saying. One of the fathers of one of the three killed hostages says the IDF murdered his son. Uh, you know, a very well-known Israeli commentator, Nahum Barnea, says the killings are a war crime. These are Israelis. These are Israelis saying that. He said, we're at war now. Our hearts, all of ours, including mine, are with the soldiers. But nothing good came of blind love. What, what, is, what, is, yeah, agree, go ahead. what are you going to do about this stuff? So what happened with the three hostages was really a tragedy because they'd managed to escape Hamas somehow. And they were walking towards our forces. And unfortunately, they were tragically, tragically misidentified as a threat and they were killed. And that is, that is a, a tragic mistake. I can say in defense of the soldiers, though the, the investigation is ongoing, yes, but the intelligence to the soldiers on the ground was hostages. You expected to see them in some dark dungeon, in a tunnel, in some uh, room, in a house. We didn't expect to see hostages walking around the streets. And there was obviously, they, 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 they perceived these three men uh, as a threat, and that's why they were killed. But it is unacceptable. And we've, we've take, made changes now to the instructions of our soldiers, so this won't happen again. But for Israelis, it was the worst thing, as you said. Uh, in any combat situation, especially in urban combat, where you've got close quarters uh, fighting in an urban area, uh, you'll often, unfortunately, you'll get friendly fire incidences where you, you kill your own people. This was even worse, because we didn't kill a soldier. We, we killed civilians who, who had been, I mean, Close to 70 days, uh, they, they had been held by Hamas. They managed somehow to escape to freedom, and, and they were close to being saved. And then be, by a tragic mistake, they, they ended up dead. It, it, terrible. It, it really is terrible because, you know, they might not have expected to see them walking, as you say, walking around the street, but it looks like they were trying to approach the soldiers and try to get rescued by their own soldiers to the point that they were shirtless Correct. and waving a white flag. So you, you can imagine that this, is, this is, has gone down, as you've seen, very, very poorly, obviously with the families and with, with many people in, in your country. Now, your defence minister, Yoav Gallant, said yesterday, alongside the British, sorry, the US Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, that you, they, the IDF, are adjusting tactics. Can you explain that? What are the new rules of engagement? 
So obviously I'm not going to go into details because Hamas is also uh, uh, watching. But we are, as this conflict goes on, there's always lessons that can be learned. You're always redefining and looking again at what you can do better. And uh, I'm happy to tell you that as far as I've seen the numbers, and these numbers have been shared with the Americans, we're actually seeing the number of uninvolved people, the, uh, what the experts call very dryly collateral damage, the number of, of civilians getting caught up in the crossfire is going down. And we are managing to be more surgical and, and, and hitting Hamas and hitting Hamas hard. As you know, in the north, there have been many, many surrenders of Hamas terrorists. Uh, we're close, we believe, to a collapse there. In the south, because we started our operation a bit later, it'll take a little more time. But we are going to win this war. Hamas will be destroyed as a military organization. Yoav Gallant, again, Defense Minister, said, and we reported it, I reported it on October 10th, two, three days after the slaughter inside Israel. He said, I have released all the restraints. We have regained control of areas and we are moving to a full offensive. But I have released all restraints on my people. Do you think in retrospect, given the massive number of civilians who've been killed and now your own soldiers who've been killed, that this was a mistake not to not to follow the rules of war from the very beginning. So I would argue that Israel has always been following the rules of war and that if you actually compare the behavior of the Israel Defense Forces in this campaign against Hamas in Gaza, let's say to other foreign armies, whether it was fighting ISIS in Mosul or in Fallujah and so forth, that actually the behavior of the Israeli Defense Forces compares very well to other Western armies in similar situations. We uphold the rules of law. That's why we asked uh, civilians to vacate areas of combat, because we didn't want to see civilians caught up in the crossfire. And while Israel makes an effort, a maximum effort, to, to try to avoid hurting civilians, of course, Hamas has the absolute opposite uh, strategy. As, as our IDF spokesperson said yesterday, for us, it's a tragedy when a civilian is killed. For Hamas, it's their strategy. For us, a tragedy. For them, a strategy. And that's why they've embedded themselves using Gaza's civilians as a human shield. Not just Israel says so. The EU says so. The UK says so. The US says so. They have a defined strategy which wants to see maximum civilian casualties to protect their terror machine. And, and all those countries, those allies of yours, have also uh, urged you to follow the rules of war. So there is a bit of a disconnect here and to greater protect civilians. Um, I, I'm going to get to some of the munitions in a moment, but I do want to ask you about, um, about hostages because it appears that obviously your own people want that. They want their people, their family members, their friends released. For them, it appears that it is, if not if not the first order of business, equal order of business in your counteroffensive. And you keep saying that pressure has, has, is what brought Hamas to the table with more than 100 releases a few weeks ago. And yet it was negotiations, and negotiations continue. And you've heard that some released hostages have said that they are terrified when they hear about airstrikes. They're near the militants. They're terrified that they're going to kill, get killed. So is it pressure or is it negotiations? What are you going to do now to try to engage in more releases? So I don't think it's either either or. I think the only reason, as you said correctly, we got over 100 people out last month. It was precisely not because Hamas suddenly became humanitarians. They released them because they were facing a lot of military pressure 
from the Israeli Defense Forces, and they were desperate for a timeout, for a ceasefire. And we said we will agree only to a ceasefire if you release people, and I think that forced their hand. And that could be repeated in the future. That's not impossible. As we now increase our pressure on Hamas, it's possible that we can see the release of more hostages. That's our goal. Mark, can I ask you a little bit about, as everybody calls it, the day after in those air quotes, what is your plan for, for post-war? It appears that there is a big, it appears that there's a major split between what your government and what the United States and other allies are suggesting. Um, and we've heard that many times from the United States that they want to see a political solution. They insist on the two-state solution, that they want to see a re formed, revitalized Palestinian authority, uh, try to rebuild and re-control re or re-govern Gaza. But from your end, exactly the opposite seems to be coming, at least from Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. He doesn't want to see that. So where are you all headed? What is going to happen? Are you going to reoccupy it despite what your allies say? So initially, we're obviously going to have to have security control in Gaza. But we stay, we've said openly we don't want to reoccupy, we don't want to see a permanent Israeli presence there. On the contrary. Uh, but we have two major goals. After Hamas is defeated, we want to see a demilitarized and de-radicalized uh, Gaza Strip. And ultimately, getting rid of Hamas is obviously good for Israelis because we, you know, we've got this terrorist enclave on our southern border and our people live in fear of terrorists crossing the frontier and murdering their children, yes? But it's also good for the people of Gaza. You know, you've been covering this story more than most. For 16 years, Hamas has been ruling the Gaza Strip. What have they bought the Gazans? Uh, what, 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 what positive things have they bought the Gazans? I can only think of bloodshed, uh, uh, misery, and of course, poverty. And yet, most people believe that for the sake of Israelis and Palestinians, uh, that it will only be a political solution and not a reoccupation, or as you say, a in the words you use, a demilitarized security zone, which amounts to what people fear is another occupation. And if you know, uh, if you note, Secretary Lloyd Austin has warned that, for instance, and this is in the conduct of the war, with the huge civilian casualty toll, that your aim for a, you know, well, your, your tactics right now could lead to an, an eventual strategic defeat. So, You've, you've sort of, I'm sorry to say, you, you've, you've, we've seen this pattern before. Problems in Gaza, Israeli counteroffensive, truces, and on and on it goes, without any political solution. This is the worst there is, surely where the pedal hits the metal here. So I would argue, and we, we, we sincerely believe, that in defeating Hamas, uh, we open the opportunity for political solutions that become in, that are impossible today. Because Hamas, as you know, is the most violent enemy of peace. And if their path is discredited, uh, I'll give an example. Uh, people say, well, by defeating Hamas and all the destruction that's involved in that, you're going to create a new generation of extremists. Right. And we believe the contrary is, is clue. If Hamas wins, if Hamas somehow stays in power after the terrible October 7th massacres, uh, that's a victory for them. That 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 energizes Islamist extremism, not just in Gaza but across the region and beyond. But if Israel resoundly defeats Hamas, as I believe we will, if it's clear 
that Hamas's path of radicalism and brutal terrorism and violence, if that is seen to be a losing strategy, if that is a dead end, that's a victory against that sort of terrorism also everywhere. And I believe when we do win this war, and we will, and Hamas will be discredited and the people of Gaza will be able to express their pent-up anger for Hamas for starting this war in the first place and bringing all this destruction upon them, I really believe there'll be room for uh, uh, arrangements that can be far superior than what we've had up until now. Except that your prime minister says he doesn't want Hamas and he doesn't want Fatah either, the group that's actually recognized Israel as the PLO, the, the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank. They're being discredited and weakened as well, internally, yes, but also by you as well. He doesn't want them either. So what is the political plan? Well, it's not just Israel that has problems with the Palestinian Authority. I mean, you, you quoted before the Americans who talk about a revamp yeah, and revitalized Yeah, but they still want them. They're still the then. only option right now. But can I, can I just say two things? We've, it, it's, I think, close to 74 days since this, the October 7th massacre. And as you know, uh, the Fatah leadership, the PA leadership on the West Bank has still refused to condemn the beheadings, the burning of people alive, the rapes, uh, the violence, uh, uh, and even the, the official PA Ministry of Foreign Affairs, what was it, three weeks ago, puts out uh, a letter on its official stationery. This is the foreign ministry of the PA saying that the, uh, the killings at the music festival where Hamas fighters uh, machine gunned the young uh, music uh, revelers there, yep. uh, that was actually, they said, done by Israeli helicopters. This sort of, it's almost obscene conspiracy theory material that's put out by the PA. And, uh, and, and yet I would on ask this you program, if the PA I can't demilitarize... Mark, on this program, I have had PA condemn the death of civilians um, and the killing of civilians and ad admit that that is not at all, at yeah, all. They won't specifically they condemn Hamas. They won't condemn Hamas's violence. They won't do that specifically. And on the contrary, they will justify it. Uh, and I think the Palestinian prime minister just said the other day that Hamas is part of the Palestinian family. If they were part of my family, I'd, I'd be embarrassed. Yeah, so I think many people believe, and that's... Anyway, we're going to run out of time, but many people believe that they won't be destroyed, as you say, and that they might have some political situation is going to have to come out of this. But anyway, we've tried to explore it. We'll come back to it. Mark Regev, thank you very much indeed. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Now, as the year comes to a close, we look ahead to 2024, which is set to bring a world of challenges from turmoil in the Middle East, a grueling battle in Ukraine to growing tensions over Taiwan. And on top of that, more than half the global population is heading to the polls in a groundbreaking year of elections, the most important of which will be in the United States. And that will likely be a Trump-Biden rematch. Deputy Editor of The Economist, Tom Standage, joins Hari Srinivasan to discuss the 10 trends to watch in 2024. Christian, thanks. Tom Standage, thanks so much for joining us. You write in The World Ahead in 2024 that it is a pivotal year for democracies. Why so? 
Well, we think it's the first time in human history uh, where most people in the world, more than half of the global population, live in a country that will hold an election in 2024. Uh, so it's about 4.2 billion people. And um, and the population of the world, as you know, is 8.1 billion. So that means that more than half, most people in the world are living in a country that will have a national election uh, in the coming year. And that's never happened before. And so you'd say, well, that that surely is a, is a triumph for democracy. But I think um, it's going to put a spotlight on the nature of democracy and the fact that there is more to democracy than voting, that uh, there's, uh, yeah, sure, a great big quantity of voting happening, but there's interesting quantity and quality uh, when it comes to democracy. You know, you, you have a quote in there that I want to pull out. It says, uh, in theory, it should be a triumphant year for democracy. In practice, it will be the opposite. Why? Well, because a lot of these democracies are extremely flawed. Um, so at The Economist, our sister company, the EIU, actually prepares something called a democracy index, and it gives every democracy around the world a score. And some countries are classed as full democracies. So I'm talking to you from London, and uh, we're going to have an election in Britain in 2024. And it seems very likely that the current government will be chucked out. And that's you know, one of the features of democracy, that you should be able to vote to change the government or change the leadership. And uh, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, we also know there's going to be an election in Russia in 2024. And I can tell you what the result of that election is going to be right now. Vladimir Putin is going to be, he's going to win, he's going to continue to be president of Russia. And he wouldn't be having that election at all unless he was sure that he could guarantee that outcome. So that's not a democracy. That is a sham. And um, and then you have lots of other countries in the middle that sort of are more or less authoritarian. And then sort of right at the top, just below the full democracies, um, you get the flawed democracies. And I have to say that uh, the two biggest democracies in the world, India and the United States, both of which are voting next year, are both classified as flawed democracies for one reason or another. So it is still possible for the outcome to change the leadership of the country, but there are other problems with their democracies. Being here in the United States, I've got to ask, what is the definition of flawed or, and why does the United States meet that of a flawed democracy? Um, so th there's no single definition. It's a, it's a question of how many points you score on a, on a range of metrics. But essentially, in the case of the US, there's uh, a few problems. Uh, there's very clearly a sort of breakdown in trust in the whole democratic process. Whether you're on the left or the right, uh, you think that the process is broken in one way or another. Um, and then there's also things like, you know, I mean, as an outsider, it seems extraordinary that in America, politicians are allowed to draw the boundaries of their own elections. Uh, you have sort of partisan uh, boundary commissions. And uh, mm. I mean, not in the whole of America. I think California has sort of gone back to uh, uh, the sort of situation you get in, in many other parts of the world. But um, but essentially, that means that you can draw electoral boundaries that guarantee that your guy always wins. And, uh, and what does that mean? The only way that you can lose in a situation like that is if you are primaried by someone more extreme from your own party. Uh, and so that is a recipe for polarization, which is exactly what we've we've seen in America. So, and then that in turn leads to a breakdown in trust in the overall democratic process. So that's the kind of thing. I mean, to be to be fair, the I think the US scores seven and a bit out of 10, um, which is was pretty good. Um, it's, yeah. it's only just a flawed democracy. Now, you are also a publication that says that this uh, election coming in the United States is incredibly important. It's one of the, most, if not the most crucial that our future is on the line. Now, we have heard that over and over again from uh, 2016 to 2012, 2020. So what's different about it this time, you think? Uh, well, a few things. I think um, last time 
uh, Donald Trump was president, he tried to do various things, and um, a lot of the things he tried to do, he was prevented from doing. Um, uh, and this time around, uh, he seems to be planning uh, to ensure that uh, he can he can make more of the changes he wants to, you know, politicize the uh, the, the sort of executive, the uh, things like the Department of Justice. He wants to uh, chuck out everybody and replace them with his own people who can then prosecute his enemies and uh, that sort of thing. So, so that's very concerning. Um, and also, he's making noises about how, you know, at the end of the term, if he wins again, he might want to stay on for a bit longer. Uh, oh. I think there's a word for that where you get to stay in power for as long as you like. <laughs> uh, and I seem to remember that you weren't terribly keen on that arrangement in the 18th century. Um, but anyway, uh, so there's there's that. But I think the other, the other big difference is that um, the world now is sort of much more aware of the global implications of, um, of a second Trump presidency. Uh, if Americans want to vote for Donald Trump in, in America, that's fine. That's, of course, up to them and it's a, their democratic choice. But, um, but uh, the global implications would potentially be huge. He's talking about pulling out of NATO. Obviously, he wants to pull the plug on support for Ukraine. Uh, we don't know what he'd do over Taiwan. I wonder what the consequence is of re-electing a president that was discontent with the results last time and actively tried to overturn those results. If he was to get back in power, what does that signal, I guess, to the world about us, the, the grand experiment that is democracy? Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, America is is not a great advertisement for democracy right now, and it would be an even worse one if you have an election denier who comes back in, says that maybe we don't need elections anymore in the future. And the other weird thing about it was that, um, you know, in the twenty twenty election, uh, it was the you know he's he's cast doubt on the you know the big lies that is that he he really won the presidential election, um, but miraculously the cheating only only he claims happened for the presidential election, and all of the um you know the Senate seats and the House of representative seats that all of that worked fine. Did it? I mean, what it's it seems very implausible that the the meddling only happens in one part of the ticket when you know people are voting on the on the same piece of paper. So yeah, the whole thing is deeply implausible, and um, you know it's it it would just send a very odd message uh, to people around the world to whom America is trying to preach the virtues of democracy. But America doesn't preach the virtues of democracy quite as much as it used to. And the place where democracy really needs defending right now is Ukraine, and um, it's pretty clear that you know, Republicans don't want to uh, be continuing to support Ukraine financially and militarily in the way that it has been. And that's very perilous, um, not just for Ukraine, but for, you know, a European democracy that that is in, in grave danger. I wonder, uh, since you mentioned Ukraine right now, one of the central premises for President Biden is that we need to support democracies such as Ukraine with arms. We need to support the democracy that is Israel with our support in the Israel-Gaza conflict, right? And I, and I wonder, as these tensions keep getting strained further and further, and as the public might evolve their thinking about what they're willing to stomach, what does that do to that sort of underlying principle that seems to be the binding factor here, which is that we need to support democracies? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think there is, you know, America has gone through isolationist periods in the past and uh, seems to be going into one now. I think what I'd say, particularly with regard to Ukraine, because that seems to be where there is more resistance to continued funding. And we know that the Republicans historically have beef with Ukraine and with Vladimir Zelensky in particular. Um, but just being completely sort of, you know, looking at an accountant's view of this, this is an incredible deal for the United States to basically wear down 
the military of one of your biggest geopolitical rivals without having to put American servicemen and women in the line of fire uh, and you know at very low cost because in effect the subsidies that you give to Ukraine are going straight in, in large uh, for a large part of it it's going straight to your own arms companies um, so it's subsidies it's creating jobs at home in America and it's wearing down the Russian military um, at very it's at, it's this is an incredible deal um, so mm. so even if you even if you don't care at all about democracy uh, but you do care about you know America's uh, continuing uh, you know military supremacy over over other powers then I don't know why you wouldn't want to continue to support Ukraine. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a mystery to me. And yes, I realise that there are concerns about border security and and so forth. But you can have both, right? I mean, this is this is a great deal, and um, and uh, America should be continuing to support Ukraine just for that reason, uh, for its own self interest. You know, in the in the magazine, you point out uh, how in Africa right now there have been nine regime changes in the past three years. What is going on with the shift where people might be in some ways okay with military strongmen? Yeah, so um, there's quite a worrying uh, load of polling coming from South Africa where people are you know, very uh, upset with the way their democracy is going, that they've had the ANC in power uh, ever since democracy was introduced, you know, multiracial democracy, and um, and yet they have you know big, big problems. There's lots of unemployment, uh, the power grid doesn't work, and so forth. So this may be, it seems very likely to be, the first election at which the ANC gets less than 50% of the vote. And what's astonishing is that the polling shows that people are less concerned about preserving the democracy, really they want order and they want jobs. And uh, I think it was something like 70% of South African voters said that they would accept a strong man um, showing up and, and ruling. Um, and even if that was undemocratic, as long as they sort of, you know, fixed the economy and got jobs going again, I mean, people really are at the end of their their tether on this. Um, mm -hmm. and, and actually, you see the same, you know, you, you, you're not quite to the same extent, but you do see uh, people saying, well, actually, democracy is all fine and good, but um, but, uh, you know, what we really care about is this issue or that issue. And it's very often uh, economic uh, stability or, or jobs or whatever. And so um, I think there's a danger for those of us who live in democracies that we sort of take it for granted. Um, and we think that things would be OK if we had a, a more authoritarian leader, as long as they could as long as they could make other things work well. Do you see any bright spots in terms of democracy looking out at 2024? I have to say, I see um, very few bright spots altogether looking at 2024. This is a world of increasing disorder. Uh, it's a world where there are increasingly sort of zones of impunity where nobody in particular is in charge. Uh, you've got Iran's proxies causing trouble across the Middle East. Uh, you you have this uh, short war between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Russia's backyard. Uh, then you've got the whole situation in the Sahel. You can now walk from the Atlantic to the Red Sea, 6,000 kilometers, just passing through countries that have had a coup since 2020. Um, so the world seems to be preparing for a situation where there's more conflict in future rather than less. The unipolar moment where America was the sole superpower um, has, has definitely passed. And there are now, you know, many, many great powers, large powers sort of vying for, for influence. And then the middle powers, this makes the middle powers, the sort of swing powers like Saudi Arabia and Iran and Turkey, uh, gives them a lot more clout as well. Um, and so there's just a general kind of feeling that if you want to do something like invade your neighbor, now's a good time. And, uh, you know, Venezuela's talking about invading Guyana. I mean, it, it, there does seem to be a sort of move towards much greater disorder and much more conflict. And I'm afraid that's extremely depressing. So I've looked for bright spots in 2024, but I'm afraid um, there really isn't a lot to celebrate. Is there a new 
Cold War, if there were to be these sort of multi-powers, multi-poles? I mean, is there a Cold War now brewing between China and the United States? And what does that look like going forward? Yeah, no, absolutely, there is a Cold War. So um, if you then, yes, you've got a multipolar world, but um, at a sort of uh, higher level of abstraction, you've essentially got a China-led bloc, which does include Russia. Um, and then you've got a Western, you know, American-led bloc. You've got countries trying not to take sides in the middle, like India, uh, most obviously, but, you know, other countries too, who sort of want to be friends with both sides. Uh, Vietnam is doing a great job of, you know, playing both sides. Southeast Asia is generally trying to be friends with with China, or at least not enemies, but also be friends with America. So, um, so yes, it is very much a Cold War vibe. The big difference, though, between this and the original Cold War is that there was no trade to speak of between the West and the Soviet Union during the original Cold War. And there is an enormous amount of trade and economic linkage between China and the West. And, you know, just think of your iPhone again, it's assembled in China, and it has components from actually all over Asia. But, um, but you know, this is a this is a very different situation, because supply chains um, are, are so dependent on, on China. And so this is why we hear a lot about decoupling and de-risking and companies trying to move their supply chains and their factories out of China. It's actually incredibly difficult. Because even if you move your assembly to and this is what Apple is doing with iPhones. It's assembling some of them in in India now, and it's moved some other manufacturing to Vietnam. But the fact is that an awful lot of the components and materials are still coming from China. So if there were to be a war over Taiwan and there were to be sanctions imposed, then I'm not sure that you know trying to build things in Vietnam or or India would help because I don't think you'd be able to get any components out of China. And Taiwan is one of those places with an election this year. It is. And so it's one of the uh, the two big elections that, you know, we think are most consequential next year uh, are Taiwan at the beginning of the year and the US at the end of the year. And um, in Taiwan, there are um, essentially three three candidates and the, the two opposition candidates who look like they might have got together, which would have been um, bad news for the incumbent uh, can, uh, from the DPP, uh, the, the ruling party right now. They haven't been able to get together. So it does mean that the, uh, the DPP candidate, William Lai, seems likely to win. And he is a more of an independence leading uh, candidate, whereas the other two say, no, we should be friends with China and, uh, uh, and so on. So um, whatever happens, it really is going to set the mood, not just across the Taiwan Strait, uh, but more importantly on, on US-China relations. Because if I'm Xi Jinping and uh, William Lai does win and does sort of make uh, slightly more pro-independence noises, as he is uh, want to do, um, then, of course, the first thing I want to do is uh, is essentially see what would happen if I do something provocative um, across the, the Taiwan Strait. Uh, you know, it, it, is America the overstretched superpower? Hasn't it got too much on its plate with, with Ukraine? And, uh, and Gaza and you know trouble in the Red Sea and all this sort of thing. Um, so the first thing I'm going to want to do is is not just see how Taiwan responds, but see how America responds. Um, and I'm not saying there's going to be an invasion of Taiwan in 2024. That does you know that seems incredibly unlikely. Um, but essentially, uh, this is going to set um, you know the 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 broader uh, framework for U.S. China relations. Um, the outcome of that election. So it's it's worth watching very closely. So you end your list on a positive note, and let's end our conversation there, too, about possible unifying moments in 2024. Where do you see that happening? Well, there's a few, but um, but I'm afraid I'm a bit sceptical about most of them. So <laughs> one of them is the Olympics. And the Olympics can be, even for a jaded old cynic like me, can be, you know, surprisingly moving to see, you know, all of the best people at a particular sport, uh, you know, facing off. And, and you kind of think, actually, this is really cool. Um, but um, 
the 2024 Olympics are likely to be overshadowed by arguments about, you know, what what about the athletes from Russia and Belarus and are they allowed to compete and do they, you know, compete under a neutral flag that doesn't represent their country, but everyone knows that it does and it's all a bit silly. And also Vladimir Putin says he wants to have his own version of the Games called the Friendship Games, which is for Russia and its friends. Um, so that whole thing seems to become a political football already, as it often does. Um, and then there's um, the possibility of uh, Americans returning to the moon in 2024. Uh, there's supposed to be this uh, this mission blasting off in November. It may get, uh, in November 24, it may get pushed into 25, but uh, they're not going to land on the moon. The idea is that they, they go around the moon um, and this should be, you know, extremely uh, inspiring. Surely it's going to include uh, the first black man, uh, the first woman and the first non-American to leave Earth orbit. And so surely that's a cause for celebration. And to some extent it is, but I think, um, again, this is likely to be overshadowed by the sort of political messaging around this. This is very reminiscent of the Cold War. Um, and this is very reminiscent of the warm-up missions that uh, that were done before Apollo 11 and the landing uh, in 1969. Um, and so I think, you know, this once again may look like America flexing its technological muscles and saying, look, you know, we're the best at this. Um, and, uh, and in the same way that we're the best at going to the moon, we're, you know, we're superior in other ways too. So um, I think it's actually going to be very reminiscent of the Cold War as we are in a, now another Cold War. Um, yeah. So I'm afraid that the chances of that leading to, you know, in theory, you're going to have like four members of the human race uh on, on in one place and uh you know and looking looking back at the earth and seeing absolutely everybody else um and that you know you know people find you know pictures of the earth the pale blue dot it's all it can all be very moving but i suspect that's going to be uh politically charged as well all right deputy editor of the economist tom standish thanks so much for joining us thank you and finally tonight, as Ukraine fights to save its sovereignty, another fight is underway to save its heritage. Jonathan Brent is a historian and the CEO of YIVO, a Jewish academic and cultural institute founded a century ago to preserve a record of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. This month, he traveled to Kiev's Vernadsky Library, which holds a treasure trove of Jewish historic artifacts that he hopes to digitize and preserve forever. And he's joining me now from New York. Jonathan Brent, welcome to the program. Can I just start by asking you why and what about this collection is so important that you made uh, into Alia a trip in the midst of this war? It's one of the most precious collections uh, of, of Jewish heritage uh, that was collected in Europe uh, before the Holocaust. It was uh, the product of a what was called the Anski expedition of uh, 1912 to 1914, the express purpose of which was to collect as much material about Jewish heritage of the 1,000-year-old civilization of the Jews in the face of modernism, in the face of uh, the threat of uh, World War I, in the face of assimilation. And, and so these materials that he rescued are uh, of uh, tremendous consequence uh, to the Jewish world. So, as we know, Putin has pretty much denied that there is a Ukrainian heritage and has also targeted in this uh, invasion, many cultural sites. Um, what is at stake? Has this one been damaged? What's at stake? Well, what is at stake is, are, are two different things. One is the obvious physical uh, vulnerability of these materials, uh, given the bombardment of Kiev, given Russia's express 
uh, intention of destroying Ukrainian culture and uh, Ukrainian history and, and essentially wiping it out as, as, a, as a European nation. Uh, when I was there, uh, they, they, they showed me the reading room and uh, pointed across the street to where a missile had landed that uh, blew out uh, the windows of the reading room and also the skylight mm -hmm. of the reading room. And had that missile just been 300 feet farther, there would have been no reason for me to come to Kiev. Mm -hmm. uh, these materials have never been microfilmed. They've never been Xeroxed. Uh, very few scholars ever have seen them. They were completely hidden during the Soviet period. And consequently, if a missile hits this building and wipes these materials out, they are gone forever. So I'm going it to... Will not, it will not be... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I understand. Gone forever. So I want to put up some pictures. You know, when I was there uh, early on during the war, I'd gone to Babinia, the memorial, and I saw this incredible piece of art, heritage, uh, essentially architecture. It was uh, a reproduction by a very famous architect of what a rural synagogue would have looked like, you know, you know, so many, so many years ago. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of work there. And you have come back and we're going to show you, show right now to our viewers, one of the manuscripts um, that, that you've brought back and you're trying, it's, likely it's from a religious text. Tell us about the symbols, tell us about the importance, what, what we're looking at. Sure. Well, this is, this is uh, something that really took me by surprise when I, when I saw it. As you, as you see, there are the, the priestly hands in the gesture of blessing over uh, the, uh, the, the sacred uh, holy words of uh, the Jewish people. Uh, at the top are the words Mizrach, uh, and above them, however, is the crown, a crown, and above the crown is this strange two-headed eagle. And at first, it, it, it took me a little bit uh, to, to recognize what that was, but that is the Russian imperial eagle. That is the eagle mm. of of. Of, of Russia. And clearly, this is an image which is showing the uh, means by which uh, Russification was being enforced on the Jewish people uh, of the uh, sale uh, of, the, of the Pale mm -hmm. of Settlement uh, by um, uh, uh, the czar. So, so let me just ask you then, do, first of all, do you think YIVO can and s will successfully preserve this? And in the environment, in any environment we live in, how do you see the value, particularly today, of, of preserving these, this, this heritage? Well, we have absolutely every intention of preserving it. Uh, and that has two parts. One is that we are going to provide the Vernatsky Library in Kyiv with uh, acid-free boxes, acid-free folders, so that the materials do not uh, deteriorate uh, at the same rate, uh, at least at which they are now deteriorating. Secondly, uh, we're going to digitize all of these materials, and uh, that is going to require the purchase of equipment and uh, coordinating their digitization team over okay. there with ours in New York City.
Jonathan Brent, thank you so much. And just before we go, just a note to tune in tomorrow for my conversation with Hollywood megastar Adam Driver. You'll have seen him in Star Wars, House of Gucci, the hit show Girls, the list goes on. Now he's putting the pedal to the metal with Ferrari, playing the car maker's larger-than-life founder, Enzo Ferrari. I asked Adam Driver about taking on this role and working with legendary director Michael Mann. How difficult was it for you to play Enzo? What about him? Well, I mean, I feel the pressure with every job. This one was, uh, you know, because it, he was such an Italian icon and an automotive, automotive icon, but largely because it was Michael. What I liked about the character is that Michael's version of him was that he was a racer first. So he was calm on the surface, but had a constant engine going on underneath. And, and what I love about Michael and his films is that I feel like they're accessible to everyone. get into one of my cars you get in the wind but they're not dumbed down where he insults his audience intelligence by telling them everything you have to you do have to do work as an audience member it's not necessarily a, a character a character that's easily accessible or likable which i think is more true to how things are in life. So, and and just this these moments in his films that are just, you know, incredible cinema, just beautiful moving images. And the movie is out on Christmas Day, but you can watch our interview right here tomorrow. That's it for now. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.